You're listening to a sermon preached at Chao English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you for His magnificence that we have seen over the last few months in Matthew's Gospel. Father, we pray that today you might show us again how great he is and how worth following he is. We pray that you would help us, all of us, to respond rightly to him today. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Uh, in 2003, Callie Rogers won 1.9 million pounds in a UK lottery. Uh, the ecstatic 16-year-old spent her winnings on vacations, homes, shopping, friends, even surgery. But just six years later, <clears throat> Callie Rogers is a single mother of two. She works as a maid to sustain her family. She's paying off a number of very significant debts. And she has this to say about her winnings. My life is a shambles. And hopefully, now that the money's all gone, I can find some happiness. It's brought me nothing but unhappiness. It's ruined my life. When Lisa Arcand won a million dollars in a scratch lotto, she thought it was a dream come true. She bought a home, a bunch of furniture, she took a vacation, and she opened up a restaurant. But now, just a couple years later, Arkand has had to close the restaurant, all her savings are gone, she has big debts, and she says this, winning the lottery, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Actually, it's been very depressing. Tears rolled down Lara Griffith's face as she tells her story. She won 1.8 million pounds. She says this, most people end up worse off in some way, and no one has any sympathy because you won the money instead of earning it. I'm not even back to square one. I'm much worse off than before the win. That's what Lara Griffith says. Susan Bradley runs a financial practice a financial practice that specializes in dealing with people who come suddenly into money. And she says that many, many lottery winners actually end up worse off financially than they were to start with. It encourages them to get themselves into significant debt and they end up worse off than before they were uh, and before they won the lottery. Wealth counselor Zivra Burke is a bit more specific. She says that in her experience, Roughly one-third of lottery winners find themselves in serious financial trouble or even bankruptcy within five years of winning the lottery. One-third. One in three. Now, I'm not standing up here encouraging anyone to gamble, but I'll be honest. It wouldn't be bad to win the lottery, right? Then tell me you haven't thunk it before. Surely once in a while you're like, you know what, if I won $5 million, I, I'm sure you've been there. I'm very sure 
that you could use a couple million bucks in your life right now. I'm sure you can find a way to use it. I know that I could find some very good uses for a couple million dollars myself. And yet here is the strange truth. Many lottery winners end up worse off than if they'd never won in the first place. As we follow Jesus over the last four months, we've seen him do some amazing things, haven't we? Uh, Just like the prophets had said hundreds of years earlier, just like people like Isaiah and Malachi had promised that when God came to rescue his people, the eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will walk, and good news will be preached to the poor. And church, that's exactly what we've seen from Jesus, isn't it? That's literally exactly what we've seen from Jesus. It's exactly as it was prophesied. Jesus is giving sight to the blind. He's enabling the lame to walk. He's curing lepers. He's healing all kinds of diseases. He's raising the dead. He's calming storms. He's preaching the good news to the poor. He's talking about God's coming kingdom. Jesus is unique. He's unparalleled in history. And he's exactly what you should expect when God comes to rescue his people. But not everyone is becoming his disciple. Some people are. Some people are dropping everything, following Jesus, but not everyone. Last week, you might remember, we saw some religious leaders. Uh, Jesus didn't agree with their interpretation of God's laws, specifically laws about the Sabbath. You remember that from last week? Uh, People realized that Jesus didn't actually fit into their box of how a religious leader is meant to behave. And so, despite all these miracles, despite all the miracles that they're seeing with their eyes, they don't only hate him, they've actually started to plot to kill him. Some people follow Jesus. They change their lives in an instant. They drop everything. They follow him. They change their whole lives just for Jesus. Uh, To use a biblical word, they repent. But other people hate Jesus. They want him dead. But for most people, for the crowds that we've seen time and time again in Matthew's gospel, most people, they just do uh, nothing, really. It's not like they hate Jesus. They don't hate Jesus. They've got nothing against Jesus personally, but they don't really want to repent either. They don't think Jesus is worth turning their lives upside down for. Most people, or the crowds that we've seen, they're just like how ordinary people have been right through human history. They just want a nice, comfortable, don't hassle me, leave me alone kind of life. So these people, they don't do anything about it. They don't do anything in response to the message of Jesus one way or another. They don't really respond. But if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jesus wasn't satisfied with that. He wasn't happy with that. Do you remember? He complained about his generation. He complained. He complained how his generation wouldn't dance. They wouldn't listen to John the Baptist or him as they played the repentance tunes. Do you remember that? They wouldn't dance. They wouldn't respond. And then Jesus went on to say, in chapter 11, verse 19, he says to them, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Deeds, actions. Jesus is saying, do you want to respond rightly to me? Do you want to respond wisely? Then you've got to act. You've got to do something. You've got to repent. And then if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, Jesus pronounced God's judgment on those towns. Remember that? Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. 
towns who had actually seen the miracles of God, towns who had seen miracle after miracle, but were refusing to repent. Well, here in our next passage, again, we see a great miracle. And again, we see varied responses. Uh, So some people, we read that they bring a man to Jesus. This man is a demon-possessed man. The physical symptoms of that demon manifestation in his life is that he can't see and he can't speak. And once more, in an amazing miracle, Jesus heals him. Exactly, again, a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35. A sign that God has come to rescue his people. The kingdom of heaven has come, and now people are beginning to wonder. Well, maybe this is the guy that the prophets were talking about. Maybe this really is the king. Maybe this really is the messianic king. Maybe he really is the son of David, the Messiah, the king of God's kingdom. Look with me at Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 and 23. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 and 23. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? The evidence is right there before them. The blind see, the mute speak, and the crowd, they're beginning to ask questions. Maybe this is the guy who he claims to be. Maybe he really is the chosen king of God. Maybe we do need to do something in response to this man. But the religious leaders, they're at a point where they don't care about evidence anymore. They've ceased to be reasonable anymore. Jesus has made fools of these religious leaders in front of people. He's shamed them. He's disagreed with them. He's vocally opposed them. So... They hate him now. They hate him. No amount of evidence is going to convince them anymore. And so, with a miracle performed right in front of them, they actually come up with another explanation. They say, well, he must be using the devil's power. He must be using the devil's power. Look with me at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, that's silly. That's laughable, right? It's a bit of a silly argument, and it makes no sense. And Jesus starts off his reply by explaining why this doesn't make any sense. I mean, is Satan really fighting against himself? Would he do that? Does that make sense? Is Satan really driving himself out? Well, if he is, stop worrying about him because he's finished. It makes him quite redundant. Look with me at verse 25 and 26. Verse 25 and 26. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Jesus then talks about some of the Pharisees. There are some Pharisees who also drive out demons. And he says to them, look, if one of your guys drove out a demon, you'd all be cheering. You'd have him up on the billboards. He'd go viral. You'd be like, hey, look at us. He's one of us. He's doing the Lord's work. See, you'd celebrate him. You'd never say that he's from Satan, not one of your guys. Look there, verse 27. Verse 27. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then... They will be your judges. 
Jesus isn't using Satan's power. No way. He is driving out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That's how he's doing it. That same Holy Spirit who anointed him to be God's servant, we saw that back in verse 18, the same Holy Spirit of God who anointed Jesus to be God's chosen servant is now empowering him to drive out demons. Jesus' miracles are not the work of Satan. No way. Rather, they show the power of the Holy Spirit at work in Jesus' life. They show that God's kingdom has now indeed come. Look with me at verse 28. Verse 28. But, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says, I'm not in partnership with Satan. No way. I'm defeating Satan, I'm tying the guy up, I'm plundering him, I'm looting him. Look with me at verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. That's what Jesus is doing. He's plundering Satan. Okay, Jesus has shown that the Pharisees are wrong. But the thing is, they're not just wrong. They are deliberately, obstinately wrong. There's levels to this. The evidence is clear. It's clear right in front of their eyes. But their hearts are hard. And because their hearts are hard, they stubbornly refuse to believe. They resist They refuse, they willfully refuse to believe. And so Jesus doesn't just show them up to be wrong, he actually warns them. He gives them a very serious warning. He says, look, if you're not with me, you're against me. In other words, if you're not with me, you're an enemy. And he says, that is dangerous. That is dangerous, dangerous territory. Because if you reject me, You're not just rejecting me, you're actually speaking against the Holy Spirit of God, God's Holy Spirit who anointed me, God's Holy Spirit by whom I'm doing these things. Jesus says, you want to call the work of God's Spirit the work of Satan? You want to blaspheme God's Holy Spirit? Then you are putting yourself in eternal danger. He says, yes, speak against me if you want. But don't you dare speak out against God's Holy Spirit. That is eternally dangerous. Look with me at verse 30 to 32. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. These Pharisees are in danger of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit of God. In calling the work of the Holy Spirit the work of Satan, they're putting themselves in a very serious place. It's very, very dangerous. Their obstinate refusal to believe is putting them in grave, grave danger for all of eternity. But picture the scene, right? 
Now you can imagine at this point, you can imagine the Pharisees saying, oh, come on, Jesus, we're just mucking around, right? You can picture that. Oh, come on, Jesus, we're just debating with you. We're just talking. It's just words. We're only offering a suggestion. Just take it easy. You can take it easy on the never forgiven for all eternity kind of stuff. It's just words. You can imagine the Pharisees saying at this point, oh, Jesus, like, just relax. We're just saying it. You don't have to get all worked up and G'd up. Like, we're just saying it. It's just words. And with the Pharisees, they're right. They are just speaking. All they're doing is saying that Jesus is using Satan's power. It's not like they're war criminals or mass murderers or pedophiles or something. You wouldn't think Jesus would get so upset about words, right? You wouldn't think that words cause so much trouble. But Jesus goes on to say that words are actually very, very important. What you say It shows what's in your heart. That's his point. The evil things that come out of your mouth show the evil things that are inside of you. And on judgment day, Jesus says, you will have to give an account. Everyone. You'll have to give an account for every single thing that comes out your mouth. Jesus is trying to make a point. He's trying to say, words matter. That's what he says. Look with me at verse 33 to 37. Verse 33 to 37, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you, that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. And Jesus is right, isn't he? Words do matter, don't they? Like what you say, it really does show what's inside your heart. It shows very clearly what's important in your life. It shows what you're thinking. It shows what you're feeling. It shows what your priorities are. The things that come out of our mouths are actually an overflow of what's inside of us, and words can have a profound impact. I mean, we say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But let me ask you this. Why do we say it? Because words hurt. If you're an adult, like if you're not a little kid, and if you've been hurt, right? let me ask you, if you've been hurt, over the last couple of days, weeks, months, then I'm willing to bet no one punched you. It was actually someone's words that hurt you. Words matter. Words hurt. And Jesus says on judgment day, it's only right that everyone should give an account to God the judge for our words. It's scary, don't you reckon? Think of the last five conversations you've had. It's scary, but it's right. It's God's wisdom at work. It's the right way. All right, so these Pharisees, they're not just wrong. Their stubborn refusal to accept the evidence, their hatred, their prejudice against Jesus, it's putting them in eternal danger. And so Jesus doesn't just argue with them, he actually warns them. It's that serious. So Jesus has now given sign after sign after sign. I mean, if you've been journeying with us to the Gospel of Matthew, you will agree there's been overwhelming evidence. One miracle would have been enough. We've seen so many. 
overwhelming evidence. Last week, just last week, we saw a miracle right there in the synagogue. They can't miss it. It's right in front of them. And again, today, another clear miracle, as well as all the other miracles that we've seen so far in Matthew's gospel. What have we seen? Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. So much so that the Pharisees can't even deny that Jesus does miracles. They have to make up ridiculous explanations. Like Satan is doing these things through you or Satan's driving himself out or something like that. And yet now, in the next story, they have the skin to ask Jesus for another sign. It's so stupid and funny, it makes me giggle. This is ridiculous. Think of what's going on. They've just said, Jesus, you're doing signs by the power of Satan. And now they're saying, oh, give us another sign. We want to see another one. Look with me at verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Well, as you can imagine, Jesus isn't impressed. He says they will get no sign. And notice, Jesus doesn't just talk about the Pharisees here. He's not just talking about the people who hate him. He broadens it. He now talks about his whole generation. Whole generation. His generation, who despite all the evidence, despite all the miracles, are, for the most part, doing nothing. He talks about his whole generation. They don't hate him, but they're not really repenting either. Jesus says, the only sign you'll get is my death and resurrection. And he calls that the sign of Jonah. And you'll see why. Look with me at verse 39 and 40. Verse 39 and 40. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus now goes on to talk about how hopeless his generation is at repenting. They stubbornly refuse to repent. He says, look back in the Old Testament. Even the pagans in the Old Testament were better repenters than you guys. That's what he says. Even the capital of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh, even the Ninevites were better repenters than you. Nineveh, in context, quite literally, is the center of the enemies of God. Remember, we looked at Jonah recently. Nineveh is the center of the Assyrian Empire. Here are people who are literally killing God's people and taking the rest into exile. Barbaric, evil, disgusting people. Jesus says, even those pagans, even the Ninevites, when Jonah came, they repented. Jesus says, I'm bigger and better and way greater than Jonah, but you guys don't repent. That's the contrast he's making. He's not done. He says, even the great queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, we've read about her in the Bible, the queen of Sheba, this woman from who knows where, this woman from who knows what religion, she comes all the way across the world to see King Solomon. And Jesus says, I'm way bigger, way better, way greater, and way more important than Solomon, but you, my generation, still don't repent. And so he says, that's why you're going to face condemnation. Look with me at verse 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. 
The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying, with you guys, when it comes to repenting, you're pathetic. You're hopeless. And now Jesus uses a rather strange illustration. He uses an interesting illustration. He talks about a man who has a demon driven out of him, but then more demons come into him, and so this poor guy is actually now worse off than he was in the first place. Look with me at verse 43 to 45. Verse 43 to 45. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. What do you think Jesus means here? <coughs> what do you think is the point of this interesting illustration? It's a bit strange, isn't it? Like, we haven't read anything like this before. Well, you can see that it's about his generation, right? That's what Jesus says at the end of verse 45. He says, that is how it will be with this wicked generation. Somehow, his generation, look at the sentence before, his generation will find that their final condition is worse than the first. So he's trying to tell them they're going to be worse off than they were before. What's going on here? I think it works a bit like this, the illustration. I think the illustration works like this. So Jesus' generation is the man, the demon-possessed man in the illustration. Having one demon driven out, that is like Jesus coming. Jesus comes to set them free. He comes to set them free from the bondage of sin and death and Satan. Jesus comes to do what he's just done, drive out Satan, to tie him up and to plunder him. Jesus has come to do his generation good. He's done them good. But if they refuse to repent, if they continue to be the hopeless repenters that they are, then the point is, they will be worse off than if Jesus had never come. That's his point. The fact that Jesus has come is a good thing for them. It's a very good thing for them, but it increases their responsibility. Does that, does that make sense? This is hugely important. It increases their responsibility. If they reject Jesus, now that they know, now that they've seen who he is with all the miracles, if they still reject Jesus, his point is, it's going to be like you guys going from one demon to eight demons. That's what he's trying to say. Now that they know about Jesus, if they refuse to repent, they're going to heap even worse and more judgment onto themselves. They'll be worse off than if Jesus had never come at all. It's a bit like what we are talking about at the beginning. People who win the lottery but end up worse off than they were to begin with. It is great that Jesus has come. It's like winning the lottery. But if you refuse to repent, you will end up worse off than if you'd never heard of him at all. In fact, you will wish that you had never heard of him if you know his claims and you still refuse him. It's tough stuff. Friends, it is tough stuff. 
But before we head into the parables next week, Matthew has one more little story for us. It's a story that shows the benefits of repenting. The benefits of repenting. The benefits of putting your trust in Jesus. The benefits of becoming his disciple. Jesus says that his disciples become his family. His disciples become his family. Look with me there, verse 46 to 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Just think about that for a second. Seriously, just think about that. If you become Jesus' disciple, he's saying you become his family member. You're in his own family. That's a pretty beautiful image, don't you reckon? It's pretty intimate. That's an intimate image. Don't you think so? My family can live in my house. They can sleep in my bed. I mean, if you show up to my place tonight and you walk in through the door and if you curl up in my bed for a sleep, I will think that that's a bit weird. Not gonna lie to you, it's a bit weird. Jane, Karis, they can sleep in my bed. My bed is their bed. Why? Because we're family. Because we're one family. My family will eat my food. Now, if any of you uh, show up at my place tonight and you walk in through the door and you open my fridge and you eat all my food and you help yourself to all my watermelon, I will think that that's a bit strange. I will think it's a bit strange. Not for my family, though. Jane and Karis, they can eat whatever they want. They can eat all my watermelon. My family. If you come over to my place and just open the door and walk right in and pop yourself down on the couch and turn on some music, I'll be surprised. I'll be surprised. But not for my family. If I'm sitting at the dinner table and you come and sit on my lap, I'll be concerned. If you come home with me tonight and if you start calling me honey or dad or son, I'll assume that you're talking to someone else. Not if my family does it. Friends, can you see? This is an intimate, intimate relationship. Here we are talking about a relationship of love, a relationship of sharing, a relationship of belonging, a relationship of family. And friends, this is yours. If you become a disciple of Jesus, you become a part of his awesome family. Jesus saying, if you follow me, if you repent and follow me, you're in the family. You're in my family. Jesus is saying, if you repent and become my disciple, you can come into the kingdom, you can open up the fridge, and you can help yourself to all the heavenly watermelon. You can come, you can plop yourself down on the couch, you can sleep in my bed, you can turn on the music, you can hang out. Friends, this is pretty awesome, isn't it? To be in a family relationship with, with the creator of the universe, the eternal judge, this is exciting. 
When we repent and follow Jesus, Jesus says we are now in the family of Jesus. Like, what's that going to mean for eternity? Have you thought about that? Have you thought in a thousand years' time what your life might look like, what your family situation might look like? This is really, really special, I think. All right, I'm done. But can you see what we've covered today? It's a long passage, but can you see what's in there? Jesus heals a demon-possessed man, the blind and the mute man, The crowds start to ask, is this the Messiah? Could this be God's chosen king? The Pharisees say, no way. He's from Satan. Jesus shows that they're wrong. He warns them. And the Pharisees want another sign. And Jesus says, no way. And he warns them again. And he warns his whole generation as well. And he says, if you won't repent, you're going to end up worse off than if I had never come. And then finally, this beautiful last story where he says, those of you who do repent and put your trust in me, we become family. If you look at the structure of this passage, you start with the story of Jesus setting the demoniac free, able to see, able to speak. And we finish today's passage with Jesus' disciples becoming his family. And then in the middle, you've got the Pharisees who say things like Jesus is from Satan. We've got the Pharisees and the generation, uh, this generation in the middle, who refused to repent. So if you look at the structure of this text, you can see that there is a very stark contrast. There's a very stark contrast. Can you see that? It's a very stark contrast. Jesus' kingdom is like winning some kind of eternal lottery, freed from the clutches of Satan, No more sickness, no more death, no more suffering in the kingdom of God. Our eyes will be opened to really see. Our tongues will be loosed to praise God forever. We will be with the family of Jesus. But, but, if we refused Jesus, if we reject Jesus, if we refuse to repent, if we won't accept his lordship over our lives, then Jesus is saying we are in profound Danger, eternal danger. Judgment day is going to come and you're going to have to give an account for your life, for everything you've said, for everything you've done. And without Jesus, there will be no forgiveness. Your sins will be on you. Without Jesus, friends, we have nothing to look forward to except judgment and spiritual bankruptcy. This is a stark contrast, isn't it? Let me ask you this though, if you've been following the passage, did you notice that there is no neutral ground? Did you notice that? There's no middle ground? In today's passage, you won't find a fence to sit on. There's no middle ground. According to this passage today, if you do nothing, then you are not in Jesus' kingdom, you are not in Jesus' family. If you make no decision, then according to Jesus, that's a decision against him. And Jesus says here in verse 30, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And maybe that's what some of you need to hear today. There is no middle ground. You can't be a fence sitter. You're a friend of Jesus or an enemy of Jesus. They're not my words, they're his words. It's there in verse 30. Friends, the application of this passage is very obvious to us, isn't it? It's blindingly obvious. If I can use, if, you, if you'll allow me to, to use the image of the carrot and the stick that you try and motivate the donkey with, the carrot here is so delicious. The benefits on relying on Jesus are, are so awesome. 
The, the benefits of this are so awesome. And the stick is so, so dreadful. It's so terrifying and awful. If we refuse to repent, what a terrible future is coming our way. The stakes are so high. The contrast so stark. Friend, please, please do not reject Jesus. Please do not rely on yourself. Please rely on Jesus and only Jesus because if you don't, there's a terrible future coming your way. The stakes are that high. I don't know who needs to hear this, but hear this. Please, don't do nothing. If you know that you're in spiritual limbo right now, where you're kind of flirting with the idea of repenting, God's word to you today is repent. Repent today. Repent today. Come out of the darkness. Stop worshiping sin. Repent today. Cling to Jesus today. Jesus offers you forgiveness today. He offers you his Holy Spirit today. Claim it today. Please, don't you think that you can put this off and make a decision on your deathbed. It might be too late. Please don't think you are wiser than God because here in our passage, Jesus demands that we act. He demands that we stop running life our way. He demands that if we accept him, we become his disciples, we become his family. He promises us that he'll set us free for eternity. Friends, the benefits are absolutely huge. The consequences are dire. We really, really must repent. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we confess that we are sinners who have never perfectly loved you. Father, we are people who, in our words and in our actions, in our thoughts, have never loved you as you rightfully deserve. Father, we've never given you the glory that is rightfully yours. Father, we confess that we haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. Father, we are people who don't want to stand before you on judgment day unforgiven. And God, that is why we thank you so much, so much for the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much that you sent your one and only son to live this perfect life of obedience and worship. Thank you, Lord, that he died in our place for our sin so that we might be forgiven and saved. Lord, would you please help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to repent. Help us, Lord, to stop running life our way. Help us, Lord, to submit to Jesus as King, to trust in his death and resurrection alone for the forgiveness of our sins and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, please make us Jesus' disciples our Father, please welcome us into your family because we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.